Hello, and you are listening to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast this week, episode number 110. I'm your host, Rick Cole, and every week, right here on the Hockey Podcast Network, we take a trip back in time down memory lane, and we bring you all the hockey news from 50 years ago, exactly as it happened, in the words of some of the greatest sports writers of all time. In this particular episode, we are looking at the week of November 29th to December 5th, 1971. Now, if you like what we do here each week on our podcast and every day on Twitter, you can help us out by going to patreon.com slash hockey 50 years and subscribe to this podcast. Subscribers get early access to every week's free podcast. And we also put up several times a month some very interesting special content where we dive more deeply into the subject of the day and try and give you a little more detail on what was happening back in those days, more context. And we try and get into even more some of the personalities that was going on at that time. So it's patreon.com slash hockey 50 years to subscribe. So during this week, 50 years ago, a very eventful month of November was coming to an end and December was about to begin. The final month of 1971 might have some very interesting surprises for the hockey world. And all this kind of starts this week. Uh, there was an interesting note to me anyway to start the week. Uh, the St. Louis Blues announced that they had purchased the contract of 33-year-old uh, utility man Jerry Odrowski from the Western Hockey League, Phoenix Roadrunners, and they brought him up to the NHL team in St. Louis. Now, Jerry had been around professional hockey for many years, and for some reason, I always liked his game. He was not spectacular, very efficient, great skater. He could play defense or forward, and he was a world-class penalty killer. And he just seemed to me like like a really good guy. Now, interestingly enough about this deal, and by the way, Odrowski was by no means brought up for his scoring prowess. He was not anywhere near even the team leader in scoring. But over this deal, the Toronto Maple Leafs uh, were actually a little upset about it, believe it or not. The Leafs at that time had a working agreement with the Phoenix Club, and they expressed dismay that the Western Hockey League team had sold Jerry to another NHL team with at first at least letting the Leafs know that they were planning to get rid of him. Now, here's kind of what upset the Leafs. The Roadrunners had just finished suing the Maple Leafs for not providing them sufficient playing help as per their working agreement over the past couple of seasons. So here they were whining to the courts that the Leafs weren't giving them enough playing help. They were suing them and yet here they were okay with selling one of their better players, maybe their best player at this point in time in the season, their all-round best player for nothing but cash. They got no playing help from St. Louis for Jerry Odrowski. The Leafs, it turned out, actually had interest in bringing Odrowski up to Toronto, but they were reticent to try and arrange a deal with the road runners like the Blues did because of the lawsuit and they didn't want to be accused or show that they were actually doing what Phoenix was accusing them of doing. Anyway, didn't work out, but it did for Jerry, who ended up in the NHL with the St. Louis Blues. Speaking of the St. Louis Blues, their new coach, Bill McCreary, says that he wants to go with a two-goalie system. He said that when he was hired, and he said it again this week. But for the time being, he's using only one goalie, and that's 34-year-old, up to this point, career minor leaguer, Jimmy McLeod. Uh, McCreary says that the or young Ernie Wakely, well, he's not really young, but he's younger than McLeod. Hell, just about everybody in St. Louis was younger than McLeod except the coach. Anyway, he said Wakely wasn't playing well enough, so he was going to go with McLeod regularly until Wakely can get himself straightened out. Now, the big hoping goal this season for the Blues was the youngish Peter McDuffie, former St. Catharines Jr., who we got to watch uh, in the OHA. He had been acquired in the offseason from the New York Rangers. Rangers. But he wasn't having such a great start to his NHL career either, and the Blues sent him to the minors for more experience. 
Jerry Desjardins, the Blackhawks goaler who broke his arm last March, broke it terribly. It was an awful injury. Uh, he was traded to the Seals before this season started. Then he was traded back to Chicago when it turned out that his broken arm hadn't healed properly. In fact, uh, I got a little side story on that. But he was telling folks this week he hopes to be back on the ice in the NHL, at least on the ice by Christmas and playing shortly after the holidays end. If Jerry can make it back to anywhere near the player he was before the injury, that's going to give the Blackhawks three bonafide NHL net miners, along with Tony Esposito and Gary Smith. A lot of insiders figure that's going to spark yet another trade of one of the Hawks' three goalkeepers for some more help at a different position. But don't forget this, an expansion draft will be coming up this summer, and the Blackhawks are going to be able to come through this without losing one of two major league netminders, Desjardins will probably be the netminder that will be exposed to the draft, and he could end up in Atlanta or on Long Island next season. We had a bit of injury news from players who otherwise had been healthy this week. The Penguins said that right winger Rene Robert had to remain in a Montreal hospital for a few days after their weekend game with the Habs. He had a badly bruised back and a lot of the Penguins were wondering how that happened. Meanwhile, also in Montreal, the Canadians said that defenseman Guy Lapointe's going to be out for at least two weeks with a fractured cheekbone when he stuck his face in front of a shot. Dennis Hextall, you may remember, was acquired last summer from the Oakland Seals, and that uh, center has been out of the North Stars lineup since training camp. He had knee surgery after a bad knee that he's had actually for a couple years. Was acting up. They said, let's just get this over with, do the surgery, and he's been out ever since. Well, Dennis was skating with the North Stars this week, and if he continues to show the progress he did in his first couple of workouts, he might make his season debut with the North Stars sometime this month. Well, with the NHL announcing his expansion in the last couple of weeks, more teams seem to want to get in on, on this lucrative industry. A group of Indianapolis, Indiana businessmen and city officials met with Clarence Campbell, the president of the NHL, about a possible franchise in the city of the 500-mile race. The group... Uh, they met with Campbell in Montreal, was headed up by Indianapolis Deputy Mayor John Wallace and John Weissert, who is the general manager of the American Basketball Association, Indiana Pacers. Now, these guys, of course, uh, from the ABA, their founders are now starting up the WHA, but Indianapolis, it seems, doesn't want any part of that. They're looking at the NHL. The city and the Pacers have a strong interest in attracting hockey to Indianapolis because the city is building an 18,000 seat downtown arena. The Pacers will call the new arena home, but the basketball dates won't be enough to keep it full and more importantly, in the black. And the folks from that Midwest city weren't the only ones angling for an NHL team. A Seattle businessman and part owner of the Portland Blazers of the National Basketball Association, another basketball tie-in here, has expressed interest in a joint Portland-Seattle Major League Hockey operation. Herman Sarkowski said, if there was some viability in this arrangement, I'd have some interest. It would serve the two teams I have real roots in. National Hockey League officials have discussed the possibility, apparently, of a regional team playing half its games in Seattle and the other half in Portland. But Sarkowski said he would be reluctant to compete with Sam Shulman, who is the owner of the Seattle Supersonics NBA team. Now, if Shulman wants to bring Major League Hockey to Seattle, Sarkowski Tarkowski would stand aside because Shulman has considerably deeper pockets than does Sarkowski. 
Now, there's even more NHL expansion news this week, and part of this is because if you remember when they awarded the franchises to Long Island, New York, and Atlanta, Georgia, they said two more franchises would be awarded to start probably in 1974. In Kansas City, a series of meetings were being held in an effort to nail down the location of that city's new 16,000-seat arena. A lot of people want to see a downtown location, but a good number of others who... Uh, do wield some influence in that city wanted in an area known as the stockyards now the downtown arena has a problem there just isn't any parking in that area according to the sports writers that are covering this in kansas city Lieutenant Governor William Morris says that he has made an application for an expansion franchise to the NHL and this week he was meeting with five individual groups who want to build the new rink but no one is getting close to getting approval. Morris said that they have to have everything put together by January 1st in order to make a presentation to the NHL at their next meeting, expansion meeting, which will be held January 25th in Minneapolis. Have a nice social note this week. Rogie Vashon recently traded from the Montreal Canadiens to Los Angeles Kings of the NHL, made some permanent arrangements with Montreal yesterday. He quietly slipped across the international border and married an attractive television and newspaper researcher from Montreal. He married her in, of all places, Burlington, Vermont. Vashon, a goalie who started the current hockey season with the Habs, he was later dealt to the Kings, went before a Burlington Justice of the Peace with Nicole Marie Blanchard for the quiet ceremony. Vashon told a reporter, we made the decision pretty quickly. Uh, he was asked why the couple had come uh, 80 miles south of Montreal for their ceremony. Well, Vashon explained, it takes three or four weeks to get married in Montreal with all the paperwork and down here much quicker. Vashon flew into Montreal yesterday ahead of his teammates, picked up Nicole. The couple drove to Burlington where they tied the knot. The general manager of Hockey Canada, which is sort of a, uh, almost like a shadow organization to the Canadian Amateur Hockey Association, they're exploring international possibilities for Canada. Their general manager is a fellow by the name of Buck Hool, and this week he informed them that he plans to leave the organization within a month, and Buck told Red Burnett of the Toronto Star he'd like to land a job in professional hockey. It was taken as a foregone conclusion that he would return to the employ of the Toronto Maple Leafs and Maple Leaf Gardens. That's who he left when he went to Hockey Canada. The late Stafford Smythe made that clear when he announced that Hull was joining Hockey Canada. He said that Buck would always have a place with the Maple Leafs. Hull insists that as of January 1st, he'll be in the market for a hockey job anywhere, and there's some speculation he could end up in the New World Hockey Association. The great Minneapolis sports columnist Sid Hartman writes a bit this week about Bill Goldsworthy and his fine season. On the last North Stars homestand, Bill Goldsworthy expressed displeasure when coach Jack Gordon benched him. Bill left the bench during a game. Gordon spoke to Goldie and he returned to the bench. Looking back, Goldie believes this may have been a turning point for him this season. Goldsworthy says, at the time, I was trying to do too much. Bill went on to say that he wasn't getting any results and benching him was actually a good move on the coach's part because he knew how hard that Bill was pressing and if you've played hockey and you know you're pressing you know the results just never really are there. Goldsworthy said I hate to sit on the bench but I have to agree with some people that this incident woke me up. A former NHL forward Gene Ubriaco, one of the game's good guys, has announced that he is going to be turning to coaching. The Chicago Cardinals, a semi-professional ice hockey team in the Windy City, officially was formed this week and announced that their coach will be Gene Ubriaco. The Cardinals, who have played on an informal basis previously, will commence their official 26-game 1972 schedule on 
on January 15th. All their games are going to be played at the 3,000-seat Twin Ice Farm in Oak Brook, uh, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago, and they will be scheduled for Saturday nights and Sunday afternoons. The interesting part of this is the uh, Cardinals don't have a league to play in. They're playing a strictly exhibition uh, series. Most of the players on the team are going to be between uh, 25, 32 years old, and they're going to be uh, former participants of college teams mostly, but they're otherwise employed. Uh, they just want to continue playing hockey at a high level, and this is going to be a pretty entertaining brand of hockey, according to new coach Gene Ubriaco. Sabres general manager coach Punch Imlach was relating this story this week about how Richard Martin, Buffalo's fine rookie, had things pegged pretty well at last June's draft. You see, Richard Martin was at the draft and he figured he would go somewhere between third and sixth, which, which meant Vancouver, St. Louis, Buffalo, or Boston. He based his reasoning on the fact that Guy Lafleur had so much publicity in French Canada that the Montreal Canadiens were to look stupid if they didn't draft him. And that was right. He thought that because Marcel Dion had been the leading scorer in the OHA Junior A Series for two years, he certainly would have to be the second choice. As it happened, Martin was dead on in his calculation. Now, Richard Martin told Punch that when Vancouver took Jocelyn Gavrema, he kept his fingers crossed. He didn't want St. Louis to draft him, and they didn't. They took Gene Carr out of Western Canada. As Gilbert Perot in his last year of junior hockey roomed at Martin's house in Montreal, Martin knew that by going to Buffalo, he wouldn't be lonely there. He'd have a good friend on the club, maybe even on the same line. In the Sabres planning, what Imlac says is they intended to play Martin with Phil Goyette, figuring that Perot and Eddie Shack on one line with Jerry Meehan and Steve Atkinson on the other line would give us a fairly balanced attack for a second-year expansion team. Well, the best laid plans often go astray, and the balanced attack fizzled, so in order, what happened was, in order to get a slow-starting Gilbert Perot going, Imlac moved uh, Richard Martin up to play left wing with uh, Gill, and it certainly did great things for the two of them. They become so good that the California newspapers build the game of the Sabres at the Seals as Martin and Perot versus California. Sounds like a Supreme Court case of some type. You know, some days you just got to laugh at the NHL. This is 50 years ago, and they're no different now, but here's just how stupid the NHL was. In just their second year of operations, and it happened in the first year as well, the Buffalo Sabres were not allowed to broadcast any of their games on uh, WKBW Channel 7 in Buffalo on any night when the Maple Leafs were playing at home in Toronto in a completely different country. Now, this is how not to build a franchise uh, 101 by the NHL. Or maybe it just shows what jerks those who make the decision in Toronto and the league really were. The Sabres could use all the exposure that they could get as a new team. Turned out they were in a pretty good hockey market at that time. Canadians were filling up the rink anyway. And the Canadians that were going to the Sabres games certainly weren't making the long drive from the Niagara region up to Maple Leaf Gardens every Wednesday and Saturday. I guess the Bruins' mediocre performance so far this season was kind of getting to the team, even in their practices. Coach Tom Johnson... Uh, said that uh, one of the workouts this week was really spirited and was really <laughs> was quite a bit more than that. At one point, the proceedings erupted into a lively little brawl among the boys on the ice. In the course of a scrimmage, Ken Hodge and Derek Sanderson got to flailing away in an episode that was curiously a case of mistaken identity of all things. Hodge was cut on the chin by an apparently accidental swipe from winger Ace Bailey Stick, but Kenny seemed to think that Derek Sanderson was the culprit. Anyway, Kenny and Sandy went at it uh, quite vociferously word-wise, and then all of a sudden they started swinging heartily, and it took some strong-arm business by Coach Johnson and Phil Esposito, ever the peacemaker, to pry the two apart. By the time the players made their way to the showers, nobody appeared to be unduly disturbed, although there was no comment by the participants. Hodge was sent to a doctor to have a few stitches taken 
on his chin. Some extremely sad news from the BC Junior ranks this week. Barry Smith was an outstanding hockey prospect with the new Westminster Bruins, and he was injured fatally in an automobile accident early Thursday night in Surrey. He was only 17 years old. Surrey RCMP said that Smith was a passenger in a northbound car which rolled over in the 6400 block King George Highway. Two other Bruins players, New Westminster Bruins players in the car, Bob Craig and Bob Stump, both escaped injury. Police said their car apparently swerved to avoid an oncoming vehicle, went into a skid, and rolled over. The accident took place around the dinner hour at 6.40 p.m. New Westminster coach and general manager Ernie Punch McLean said Smith was one of the finest young prospects ever to play for me. Well, it looks like North Star's general manager, Ren the Bird Blair, is going to be off work for a little while. The uh, general manager of the Stars will undergo surgery this week at Methodist Hospital in Minneapolis to correct a long-standing lung condition. Blair, 46, is going to be hospitalized for up to 10 days, and he's going to require after that three to four weeks of recuperation at home before they will allow him to return to his office at the Metropolitan Sports Center. And 50 years ago, he didn't even have a laptop to put in his uh hotel bed or hospital bed and order him to you know kind of surreptitiously carry on his job. Dr. Frank Seidel one of the North Star's team physicians described uh, Blair's condition as bronchiostasis one of the right of the right lung. This is an infection that is the aftermath of an attack of pneumonia that Wren apparently suffered during his youth according to Dr. Seidel. The surgery involves removal of the right middle lobe of the lung. Now, Blair has suffered from the lung condition for several years. It was one of the reasons why he stepped down from the Minnesota coaching job two years ago. Uh, being around cold rinks certainly couldn't have been good for that. And, of course, we all wish Ren Blair the best as he undergoes his surgery. Now, I apologize to those you who are fans of this gentleman, but it seems I can't get through a week uh, without some kind of Stan Fischler pronouncement that inevitably ages very badly. This is from his uh, Sporting News uh, column this week. And, of course, Stan is writing basically to a... Uh, in the sporting news to an audience of baseball fans. So I, I guess it doesn't matter just how accurate you are. But uh, Stan writes the 71-72 disappointment for the Canadians so far this year has been Guy Lafleur. Auditioned on the power play at right wing and center, the Quebec Remparts graduate should have been given a season in the minors before being thrust so rapidly into big league company and with such overwhelming fanfare. Lafleur's problems underline the difference in quality between the Ontario Hockey Association Junior A League and the Quebec Junior Circuit from whence Lafleur came. The OHA, which sent prolific Richard Martin to the Buffalo Sabres, remains clearly superior to any other junior league in Canada in terms of competitive quality. If manager Sam Pollock erred in promoting Lafleur or in drafting him over, say, Richard Martin, the GM showed class in his decision to stay with goalie Ken Dryden, not to mention his insight once again demonstrated in the Rogatim Vashon deal. Pollock's acquisition of goalie Dennis DeJordi, a better netminder than Rogatim Vashon ever will be, not to mention defenseman Dale Hoganson, Noel Price, and forward Doug Robinson, plus a draft choice, may be the steal of the century. It has been widely assumed that Los Angeles manager Larry Regan was responsible for the Kings deal, but NHL insiders 
contend that the panic button was pushed in L.A. by none other than Los Angeles King's boss, the owner Jack Kent Cook. If so, it will be but another chapter in the saga in which portrays the King's talkative owner as the man who was torpedoing his own franchise. It began with his feud with Red Kelly, leading to Kelly's departure, and it may end with the permanent burial of the King's in the Western Division cellar. Yeah, that Rogie Vashon, he's not going to be anything, is he? I happened to meet Rogie Vashon on the night he was inducted into the uh, Hockey Hall of Fame. I was with my friend Ed Chadwick in the Maple Leafs alumni box, the washroom located in the hallway outside that private box. I went in there and standing next to me, relieving himself, was Rogie Vashon. And we had a nice little talk, congratulated him on his induction to Hall of Fame. And he was uh, uh, quite a nice man and, and very gracious. The strongest trade rumor this week came out of Boston where the Maple Leafs and the Bruins were both reporting, or I should say writers from their cities were both reporting that uh, the clubs were close to a trade that would send right winger Ken Hodge from the Bruins to the Maple Leafs in exchange for another right winger, the very hardworking and really good guy, Ron Ellis. One sticking point apparently was that Boston general manager Milt Schmidt was trying to get the Leafs to include little used defenseman Brian Glennie in the deal, but general manager of the Leafs, Jim Gregory, wasn't biting on that unless the Bruins included another one of their young players, and Gregory apparently had suggested that maybe Reggie Leach, who was not getting all that much ice time with the Bruins, might be somebody that they might send towards the Maple Leafs. Didn't happen. So we had a few World Hockey Association headlines this week. Uh, For greater detail on these WHA stories, if you join our Patreon subscribers, you're going to be able to get a lot more detail. That's what we're going to them. And we'll have these headlines after this message. The NHL season's underway and DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the National Hockey League, has an unbelievable offer to celebrate the greatest sport on ice. New customers can bet just $1 on any NHL game and win $100 in free bets if either team does so little as just score a goal. Doesn't matter if it's a one-time clapper or a deft deflection, however they light the lamp, you win. The sportsbook, If Sportsbook isn't available in your your state yet, DraftKings won't leave you empty-handed. Everyone can play for huge cash prizes all season long with DraftKings Daily Fantasy Sports Contest. DraftKings has given all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code THPN, throw down a dollar on any NHL game, and win $100 in free bets if either team scores a goal. This week, one puck in the net nets you a big win with promo code THPN at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NHL. You must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only, and only new customers can take advantage of this. You need a minimum $5 deposit and a $1 wager is required one per customer and some restrictions do apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for all the details. Have a gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Don't forget our other two sponsors as well. The Breakwall Brewing Company, located in downtown Port Colborne, has some of the finest craft beers in Ontario. A great place to go for lunch, dinner, or just meet up with a few friends. And of course, newspapers.com, the largest online newspaper archive in the world, helps us with all our research. And if you're a historian, no better place to go and do your research. So we start out our WHA uh, headlines this week uh, with Jim Taylor of the Vancouver Sun. Uh, He came right out and asked Winnipeg Jets owner Ben Haskin if he'd talked to Bobby Hull yet about jumping to the new league. Uh, Taylor writes, Ben Haskin has silver hair, an ample tummy, and a voice that is early gangster movie styled. Naturally, 
he's planning a heist. Nah, says Ben, I haven't talked to Bobby Hall. I'm not saying I haven't talked to some other players, mind ya, but not Bobby Hall. If I wanted to talk to Bobby Hall, I wouldn't have to come to Vancouver to do it. It seemed that Bobby Hall had made a trip to Vancouver with the Blackhawks, of course, and Ben Haskin ended up in Vancouver at the same time. So Taylor asked Ben, if you had talked to Bobby Hall, would you admit it? Haskin winked at Taylor and said, nope, I wouldn't. Wayne Overland of the Edmonton Journal, it it looks like he wants everyone to think he's a WHA insider long before that useless overused term of insider became popular with the watered down sports media we have 50 years later. But you know what? Wayne was actually very plugged in about the doings of the WHA being his city. Edmonton was one of the charter members and Wild Bill Hunter I never met a reporter he didn't like to have a chat with. Now, Overland has these uh, nuggets from this week from the WHA. He writes that there are reports that Wild Bill Hunter had been basically kicked out of the league or at least removed from any of his committee work of any importance. It seemed Bill like as we mentioned to run at the mouth a bit had opened his mouth a little bit too often and was stealing a few headlines from league brass but zane feldman who was the chief money man of the edmonton franchise he assured overland later in the week that bill is in good stead with the wha he's not going anywhere but he might just be toning down his rhetoric a bit i guess Overland also writes that despite what Ben Hatskin told Jim Taylor, the Vancouver Sun, Wayne says the Winnipeg owner is full steam ahead on courting Bobby Hull with apparently a $1 million offer to sign with the new Winnipeg Jets. Overland also says that kind of gumming the works up is the Chicago WHA franchise, the Cougars, who are making noises about trying to sign Hull, something that apparently irks Ben Hatskin to no end. He figures with Chicago saying stuff like that, it might damage his chances of convincing the Golden Jet to move to Manitoba. Now, Hatskin apparently, according to Overland and others that we've read, owns uh, Hull's WHA rights, although we don't know exactly how that was accomplished. There were reports early on with the WHA that they held a draft and that each team selected four players. Uh, Many writers, including Stan Fischler and a couple others, said that wasn't true. I happen to think that that was correct. And then we got other stories this week that the league held a draft and that they each took two players. We don't know what's going on, but it sounds like uh, Hull's rights belong to Winnipeg and Chicago making noise like this couldn't have been helpful. Another note from uh, Wayne Overland was that Herb Martin, uh, he's the rich guy behind the new Miami Arena, 16,000 seat arena, business complex, hotel, shopping mall, and I don't know what else. That's what he's building in Miami. Well, this week he was going to travel to Edmonton to assist the good folks there in obtaining some kind of a big league arena. The gardens in Edmonton just are not suitable for big league. It's just not doesn't have enough room to make money, enough bums in the seats there. Martin, of course, seems to be the guy that knows how to get things done. He's got a good, solid franchise there in Miami, according to everybody who's got anything to do with the WHA. So what the league is going to do is send Herbie around to places like Edmonton and Dayton, who are going to try and get arenas, and he's going to be the guy that has the recipe to the secret sauce that is needed to put the big league arenas in those cities. And the final note from Wayne Overland, he says that Gary Davidson, now Gary Davidson is the WHA president, he is also the franchisee for the San Francisco uh, team that's going to be in the league, and he's after somebody to be the uh, head honcho in the hockey department for the San Francisco franchise, and that guy, he wants it to be Bud Poyle, the GM of the Vancouver Canucks, who might be wearing out his welcome in Canada's biggest West Coast city, and maybe Bud might be looking to make a move. 
A report out of Long Beach, California, says that the uh, WHA franchise slated for the Los Angeles area might end up taking a turn towards Long Beach, who have the 14,000-seat sports arena waiting for a big league tenant. Apparently, Sam Shulman, who owns the Seattle Supersonics, is getting involved. Now, what happened was... Shulman has apparently thrown his lot with the NHL uh, with a proposal, as we mentioned earlier, to expand Seattle Coliseum at his own expense to lure an NHL franchise to the Pacific Northwest. He became the maverick of the NBA a year ago when he signed Spencer Haywood over the violent objections of Jack Kent Cook, among others. The WHA then figured that Shulman would relish the chant to fight Cook's hockey team in LA, but Shulman insisted on fighting Cook from the LA Sports Arena, not Long Beach. Now that he's thrown his lot with the NHL, it would seem that Long Beach could slide in there and maybe get the WHA franchise. It seems that one angle not considered up to this point regarding the World Hockey Association was the question of Who's going to officiate their game? Scotty Morrison, the NHL referee-in-chief who firmly believes he has the best refereeing staff on the planet of any major sport, said he ain't the least bit worried that the new league would court his men. He expected it. But he and the rest of the NHL bigwigs were worried enough this week to provide pay raises to all of their key men. Yep. Tim Worcester, a spokesman for Chicago Hockey, Inc., that's the WHA Cougars, says that within two weeks there will be a big announcement on the location of the brand new 20,000-seat hockey arena for the city of Chicago and the WHA team, and we're all excited about that, aren't we? A little bit more Edmonton Arena news. You might remember the Omniplex. That was the huge arena business entertainment complex that had been proposed for downtown Edmonton a few years ago. It was voted down by ratepayers of the city in 1970. Well, the idea had been revived as a home for the Edmonton WHA team. However, the main money man for the enterprise, Zane Feldman, main money man that is for the hockey team, he says that a completion date for the Omniplex could be no sooner than 1978 and that it's not even approved yet is obviously way too late for the WHA team they would not be able to survive for five or six years in the old Edmonton Gardens uh, without uh, a new arena being in place so the Omniplex appears to be something that is not going to help the Edmonton WHA team. While the Jets hadn't announced any signings yet and certainly had not confirmed on their own that they were going after Bobby Hull, they did get a general manager this week, and he is popular Canadian broadcaster Anna Stukas, who is known more for his football prowess and expertise than his hockey. Although he was a pretty fair country hockey player in his day, he's agreed to take on the task of running Winnipeg's first Major League Hockey Club, and Ben Hatskin had a little bit more news on that. He told us that the Jets have already sold 600 season tickets, and they're season ticket campaign hasn't officially begun until Wednesday. The fans can reserve seats with a down payment of 25 bucks and total costs are 228 for Reds and 190 bucks for the Blues for the season. Hatskin projects 7,500 season tickets sold of the Winnipeg Arena's 8,773 seats. Hatskin says he's going to announce a coach, and he might even be a player coach uh, this summer. The uh, Winnipeg Junior Jets' current coach is Nick McCoskey, a former NHL star, and they say he's in the running for the job. A playing coach? Maybe Hatskin might offer Bobby Hull the chance to coach his own team. That would be an interesting situation, wouldn't it? Hatskin has one other little uh, gem to tell us here. He says that players and their agents have been approaching the World Hockey Association almost as fast as the WHA has been approaching the players. The players speak only one language, says Ben Haskin. Lay your money on the line and we'll go. 
A little bit more about the uh, Los Angeles WHA franchise. They have apparently contacted goalie Ken Dryden of the Canadians about a large contract in the new league. The, the Habs, however, quietly took steps this week to start negotiations, actually to renegotiate the lanky goalkeeper's contract in midseason in order to keep him from jumping to the new league. Ken's contract does expire at the end of this year, and he would be free to move, and the Habs want to avoid that at all costs. By the way, uh, they've said that the Los Angeles team will be known as the Aces, and when asked why the team would be the Aces, that was just mentioned that, you know, Aces always beat the Kings. If you follow any of the uni uh, university hockey in Minnesota, you know that Glenn Sumner is the uh, coach of the University of Minnesota hockey team, and he has been approached to become general manager of either the St. Paul franchise or the Hamilton franchise in the WHA. Glenn, of course, lives in the uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul area now, and Hamilton happens to be Sumner's hometown. Glenn says you have to listen to what they have to say, but at the moment, I can't really worry about that. I'm still very much involved with the university. For our final segment uh, this week, for me, 50, 50 years ago this week, it was kind of a, a, a tough a tough week. The guy who was my first hockey hero, the guy who was my first favorite player, guy I followed every week on Hockey Night in Canada, announced his retirement from the Buffalo Sabres this week. And uh, we got a couple stories to tell you about, uh, about that. First, Red Burnett of the Toronto Star. He wrote, Dick Duff, one of the great little men to travel the National Hockey League trails, has decided to retire at age 35 after more than 16 full seasons of NHL warfare. He had hoped to reach the 300 goal mark before calling it a day, but after a huddle with Punch Imlach, GM of the Sabres, Duff decided this week that this is it. This season, Dick scored two goals in eight games, but he had spent most of his time watching his Sabres teammates from the sidelines and this is a new departure for the Kirkland Lake native. Dick has always been an NHL regular. His lifetime NHL totals are 283 goals, 289 assists, in 1,030 big league games, plus 30 goals and 49 assists, and 114 Stanley Cup playoff outings. Duff never spent a day in the minor leagues. He had a three-game trial with the Maple Leafs in 1954-55, coming up from St. Michael's Juniors, and he turned pro with them the following season, even though he had a season of junior eligibility left. He spent the better parts of nine seasons with the Maple Leafs, and he played prominent parts in two Stanley Cup wins in Toronto, before he had a brief stay in New York. Then he moved to Montreal for four seasons and parts of two others. He played on six Stanley Cup champions, two with Toronto, four with Canadians. This is the second time the 5,965-pound Duff has announced his retirement. He tried to walk away from hockey early in the 69-70 season because of personal and health reasons, but Sam Pollock, his general manager at Montreal, talked him into giving hockey one more fling. In announcing Dick Duff's retirement, Punch Imlach said, he was one of the greatest little men hockey players I have ever seen. He had an uncanny ability to get himself up for big games and to score important playoff goals. He was a credit to the profession. He never turned his back on a kid or refused to request to help a worthy cause. His integrity, courage, and dedication shone through like a beacon more than matched his ability and I have personal experience with Dick Duff and can say all that Punch Imlach said there was quite true. The Globe and Mail's Dick Beddoes also had a tribute to Dick Duff uh, this week and this is what he wrote. He said, T. Richard Duff, the biscuit-colored athlete who once played left wing for Toronto Maple Leafs, announced his retirement from the big league this week. After more than 16 seasons in the big league, Duff said he'd like to spend Christmas with his parents in Kirkland Lake, Ontario. The NHL schedules, of course, have not allowed for such compassionate holidays. His announcement inspired a few 
few letters and telephone calls, all thick with nostalgia. Such reaction seems completely right to me. Toronto has seldom had among its notable athletes a more attractive fellow than Dick Duff. Beddoes then relates a story of the letter that Dick Duff wrote uh, when he was traded on February 22, 1964 from the Maple Leafs to the New York Rangers. The letter wrote was written to my friends in Toronto. Due to the suddenness of my recent trade to New York, it was impossible for me to adequately express my appreciation for the favorable manner in which I was always accepted in Toronto. Dick spoke well of the Maple Leaf management of his Toronto teammates and of Major Con Smythe for the dignity and character he has endowed at Maple Leaf Gardens. He ended the letter by saying, I came to the Maple Leafs as a boy of 14 and I leave as a man of 28. May I always carry the highest traditions of St. Michael's College and the Maple Leaf organization with honor. When my days in New York are over, I shall return to the city and to the people I know. Dick won four Stanley Cups in Montreal after the two he won in Toronto, but the chances are, in spite of his Montreal accomplishments, he'll always be remembered as a Maple Leaf. His generation included Bon and Brewer, Keon, Pulford, Harrison, Mahovlich, Nevin, Armstrong, Kelly, Stewart, Arbor, Olmsted, Stanley, Shaq, Litzenberger, Bauer, and Dippy Simmons. He scored the winning goal against Chicago in the last game of the 62 playoffs, the winner in the first of three consecutive Stanley Cups for Toronto and their first since Bill Barilko's goal 11 years earlier. In 1963, in the first game against Detroit for the Shinny Championship of Civilization, he made the late Terry Sawchuk resemble a character out of the ancient Mariner. In the first two minutes, the Detroit goalkeeper could have played for the wedding guest in Sam Coleridge's epic. He stopped just one of three shots. Duff beat Sawchuk for two quick goals, as impersonally recorded in the Stanley Cup files. The record says fastest two goals from the start of a game and period. One minute, eight seconds. Dick Duff, April 9th. 1963. Duff scored at 49 seconds and at 108. Final score, Toronto 4, Detroit 2. Memories are made of that. Now Duff retiring at uh, 36 shortly. He says he'd like some uh, non-playing job in hockey and he deserves one. I met Dick Duff uh, actually in person for the first time a couple days after 9-11, believe it or not. That week, we had scheduled uh, an evening in Port Colborne to honor uh, Teeter Kennedy at a, a place called the Roselawn Center. I was going to be the host of the evening. We were going to have Ted on the, on the stage, and basically I was going to interview him something like a, a Michael Landsberg off-the-record thing, only very little controversy, that's for sure. Teeter told me, that he didn't feel he could carry a session for an hour and a half, which I, I found unbelievable. We would sit for hours in his home in Port Coburn and talk about the old days. But Teeter said he'd like to have somebody else on the stage with him, and I asked him who he would like to have there, and he said, Dickie Duff. I would see if you could get Dickie Duff to come down here and be on stage with us. Dick, of course, was the player who took Ted's number nine after he retired. So uh, I, uh, my friend Paul Patsko, a historian, got hold. Of, I got hold of him, and he gave me Dick's phone number, and I spoke with him. And Dick said, "You want me to come to Port Colborne for Ted Kennedy? When do you want me there? I'll be there." I said, "Dick, we'll send a car. We'll pick you up. I'll take you out to dinner. We'll do what? It, well, actually, we had dinner that night in the uh, Roselawn restaurant." And Dick said, no, I'll drive down myself. I'll be there. And uh, when we're there, he said, oh, we'll do whatever you want to do. He got to Toronto or to Port Colborne about two in the afternoon. And I met him at the Roselawn Center. We spent the rest of the afternoon basically driving around Port Colborne. Dick had relatives in Port Colborne at one time. And he showed me where they lived on the east side near Inco. We drove around and we talked hockey. And Dick told me some amazing stories. He told me about the trade that uh, uh, sent him from Toronto to New York, how he found out. That's a story probably for another full broadcast. And he, and he also uh, was just very gracious. Now, I, I'm talking to an icon of my youth. I was afraid I was going to be terribly tongue-tied, but it turned out he put me completely at, at ease, and we had a great afternoon uh, talking about hockey. 
uh, and memories of all, all types. That night, when we had the presentation, Dick brought in uh, something that it was really nice. He had thought of this. He got a hockey stick, uh, a mini stick, it was, that he had autographed at the Maple Leaf practice that day. And I believe it, it was Curtis Joseph, Matt Sundin, uh, I think George Armstrong signed it. There were a couple of other signatures. And he asked that we give it to a deserving young hockey player. And I found a young guy who was having uh, to, having to quit playing hockey because of some uh, uh, health issues anyway. And we got the stick to him. And later on, to other circumstances, he actually returned the stick to me. And I have it to this day. But I just wanted to say Dick Duff was is is a great guy. Dick is still with us. Uh, I would love to meet up with him again someday. Uh, he's one of the fellows that I respect most in the sport and what he did for Ted Kennedy and for the, the uh, town of Port Coburn where I live was really something special. So that is this week's show completed, everyone. Uh, what did we learn this time around? Well, we found out that a couple more cities are expressing desires to obtain an NHL expansion franchise. There were no trades this week, but there was a very interesting trade rumor involving the Bruins and the Maple Leafs. And I tried to give you a little bit of insight into one of my all-time favorite hockey players from my youth, that being Dick Duff. Now, here's some of the stories we're working on for next week's show. Derek Sanderson will reveal he's received a very substantial contract offer from a World Hockey Association team. We'll tell you all about that. A story emerges out of San Francisco that Charles O. Finley is about to move both his baseball athletics and hockey seals somewhere east. We'll tell you where, according to respected San Francisco sports writer, the team may land. And we get our first hint, although it was completely misguided, that the WHA might just be at Gordie Howe's future. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. I can't thank him enough for all his hard work. Andy produces podcasts professionally. If you're thinking of starting one up, get hold of me. I'll hook you guys up and uh, he'll put something together for you. He's a true media professional. The very popular Juno-nominated Toronto Indie Rock Group, the Rural Alberta Advantage, provides our introduction and exit music. If you ever get a chance to see them live, don't miss the opportunity. It's a great high-energy show. Other musical pieces and sound effects are crafted by Andy Cole as well. Our research comes from files from the Toronto Star, Toronto Global Mail, and of course the many publications found at our sponsor newspapers.com. You can find us every week here on the Hockey Podcast Network, our Twitter every day at Hockey50Years, on Facebook under the 50 Years Ago on Hockey banner. We have a WordPress site, Hockey50YearsAgo.com. You can get the podcast wherever you download your podcasts from. Thanks again to everyone who tunes into the show. Lots more news from the 7172 season coming up. And on that note, we will see you next time. When the 